Bada boom, bada bing, it is what it is, and welcome to another episode of In The Area Podcast. A podcast where Isaac Schiller interview beautiful, amazing, lovely, incredible people I am in the area of. I'm on a mission to collect nuggets of wisdom, and today I collected a lot of them with Bram Lloyd, a member of the Source Runs North Trans-Canada Canoe Expedition, a Trans-Canada Canoe Expedition, 2,800 miles, 109 days. It was a trip I was on with five other guys. If you enjoyed today's episode, hit that subscribe button and follow along as we interview amazing, crazy people. So we, as in myself and six and five other guys so six guys left um on a trip from international falls minnesota from deer island um in early may and they paddled north northwest for 109 days about 2800 miles to kogluktuk on the arctic ocean at the mouth of the copper mine river and it was it was a journey. And how did you hear about this expedition? Um, so it was I think maybe February of March or March of twenty eighteen. Um yeah. I was still in college my senior year, figuring out what I was doing. With my life, I think I had decided that I was going to move to Colorado for the year after I graduated, and I got a call from my brother, Axel Lloyd, saying that Paul Beach had reached out to him recently and asked him if he wanted to join him on an Arctic trip. A very vague notion, just a, a canoe trip ending in the Arctic Ocean, and he said... I was the first person he called because he knew he wouldn't do a canoe trip without me of that caliber. Um, And then it was us three. um, And it was still just an Arctic trip, very nebulous idea that would be completed in a year and a half's time. So it's pretty far off, I think, for people of our age to think about. and. Um, then we started putting together the team. I remember on uh, one of the last days of our trip, you, during an interview, shared um, something along the lines of, you had never felt a calling before, mm-hmm. uh, but that when you heard about this trip, it was the first time you really felt a call to adventure. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I guess what I meant by that, by saying I never felt a calling, was um, a vocational calling. Um, in the sense of I, what I studied in college was never super inspired, I would say. I took some economics classes when I was a freshman and liked them and knew that that kind of sounded like it could get me a more professional career if I wanted that in the future. And then I majored in Spanish and Portuguese just because I liked speaking them um, and speaking them every day. But neither of those were really 
um, I took because I had a calling to say, be a financial analyst or um, study economics as a career or even teach Spanish or Portuguese or anything like that. It was just, I was just doing them because I enjoyed it. And then, um, but this canoe trip has been, um, or this notion of an Arctic trip had been in my head since probably 2013 when I knew that I wanted to do that. And even before that, in 2009, I think I heard about the some guys at a trip um, the previous, maybe a couple summers before that, and they presented about it. And, you know, that was like crazy to me. And then when I heard about another trip that went out in 2013, I started to know that that's something I wanted to do. And I did feel like calling, although, I, to be honest, I never thought, or I had started to think maybe the year before that, that it wasn't going to happen really because I was having trouble visualizing it. Um, and then I got that call and then I could finally visualize it again. And yeah. And then for the next year and a half, that was all I was focused on really. And yeah, so it was just like felt meant like I was meant to do it is probably what I meant by a calling. And did the trip afterwards meet your expectations of? Yeah, it definitely met all of my expectations. I mean, in terms of the adventure of it, there was plenty of adventure. There was plenty of hard work. There was, I got to see all the the beauty, beautiful, I got to see the beautiful landscape, beautiful wildlife that I kind of had always imagined. Got to see it with my own two eyes and it really did not fail to meet any expectations and got to do it with five guys that have become my best friends yeah pretty special experience you know yeah definitely i would do it again yeah when you say you would do it again you mean you would do the the route that we did not necessarily i would do that again but i would also do something else like it or shorter different ending, different starting place. Just, I would definitely do a long-term canoe trip again with, mm. with the same guys, with even with a new group of guys, maybe not new, new, but different guys or some of the same, some new ones. But I think just the fact that if you're able to come together like that you're and work hard on something um, that's a common goal, then no matter what, you're going to come out as a strong team and strong with strong bonds, strong friendships. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to take anything away from, you know, what we have, but I do think that, you know, it's just, it was all about the fact that we cared so much about a common mission and a common, we cared so much about a common thing and that brought us all together. Um, and maybe, you know, it was cause these guys, it, it's part of their personalities that, they did give it all their 100% of their thought and time and effort. Um, maybe some people wouldn't, and that would have made it fail. But you know, I think if you can get six guys together, all focusing on one thing and giving it their all, then they're going to come out 
as friends. And does that have to be a canoe trip? Or when you say that, do you do you think that you're just looking for a common pursuit with a group of people? Like, could it be anything? I mean, it could be anything. I do think that something about the wilderness is good for bringing people together. It's something special to share. Um, like, I know some people do crazy solo trips, but um, I, for me, wilderness is something to share you share in that solitude that you experience out there. And, um, and you, yeah, I think that other things could, other common goals could bring people together. But I guess the fact that it wasn't um, related to a job, like we, we weren't just six people that worked for the same company and were put on a team together. We were six people that, formed our own team and pursued something on our own volition. Um, so I think I can't think of anything else like that would fulfill that other than a wilderness trip right now. But, you know, I think maybe sports teams, very similar. Um, just things like that where you're, you're, everyone's pursuing the passion. And if everyone has that, that also will glue them together. What do you think individually you got most out of the trip? I think it, I was able to focus myself more on the task. I don't know. I think I was able to grow that way, like really focusing on one thing where I think I kind of move around a lot from item to item. Oh, I'm all over the place kind of. I've a lot of a lot of things attract my attention. And I think just being able to focus on that one thing and only that and really work towards that really was good for me and a good lesson that maybe you do need to focus on one thing and give it your all. And that could be helpful for me. Do you think that you've begun to apply some of those lessons outside of the canoe trip? Um, I think in a way I've, I've I mean, not fully, but... I think I've I've um I've definitely I threw myself at teaching pretty you know kind of just jumped in. Can you um, explain what you're doing now? Yeah, so I'm working at a middle school um Stone Creek Charter School and it's in Edwards, Colorado. We and I heard about a job opening in Jan in I heard about it in December and it was to take over a position of the we call it international language lab and it's basically with fifth sixth seventh and eighth graders i have you know one class of fifth graders one class of sixth graders one class of seventh graders so on and we the kids are all doing their own language learning through rosetta stone and i'm basically trying to wrangle these um 11 10 11 12 13 14 year olds you know to focus in class and just keep them focused on that. And then other than that, I provide supplemental kind of cultural um, activities or instruction or reading um, that just gets them thinking about other cultures. And yeah, and I, I came into that with no experience of managing a group of kids that big, you know, 20 plus kids. And you know, all of my experience with kids just comes from leading 
groups of six to eight kids on canoe trips where it's super focused. All the kids are tired. They've been worked all day. And now it's like I've got these similar age kids all crammed into a class where they've got their hormones and a lot of energy. And I'm just, yeah, learning something literally every day. And yeah, I think it's, I just really threw myself at it in that way. And, you know, would like to continue to do it as long as I'm still learning every day and getting good at it. Um, but oh, honestly, though, when you look at the past uh, six months or whatever, it's been maybe seven after this canoe trip, I have been, I did jump around a little bit. I started doing some handyman stuff before that and maybe thought I wanted to learn a trade like plumbing or carpentry. And uh, yeah, and then I dropped that to go do teaching. So kind of maybe I haven't learned that much. Still back to my old habits. Yeah, but I'm just doing what's making me feel good. Kind of like making, not not that's like, not in that pleasure sense or like I'm doing the path of least resistance, just what's making my mind come at ease. Because I think after the trip, I was feeling a lot of anxiety just in waves, just about, because I, I, I was trying to find a, a job or a career and having, and I was having trouble finding what I wanted to do. And I was just a bit anxious because I wasn't doing anything that, yeah. In, um, in Paul's podcast, I learned that he got some bad advice not to plan anything after the trip. And you didn't have anything planned after the trip. Is that correct? Mm-mm. Do you wish that you had had something planned before the trip that would, you would go from the trip into that other thing that was planned before? I think that would have been nice, but you know, just to keep me yeah, out, out of a limbo kind of thing, which I found myself in. But then again, it was nice during the trip. Honestly, for me, I wasn't like, I could see for some people maybe being worried near the end of the trip, like, oh, crap, I don't have anything planned. This trip, you know, we're scheduled to finish this in like five days and like, shoot, like, what am I doing? Um but I wasn't really affected by that. I was able to stay in the moment, and that was nice. And maybe if I had had something planned, I would have started to think about that. Like, oh, well, we have five days left of this, and then I have to be at work like on August 15th or whatever. You know, I, what, I'm probably getting the dates wrong. September 15th. And just like knowing that, that, that might have brought me out of it a little bit. So like in the trip, I'm glad I didn't have anything, but maybe after... Once it was over, it was like, would have been nice if I already had a job set up. Um, that being said, it was good. At least I had the, for me, I know Paul was in a different scenario. He had nothing in terms of where he was even going to live. And I knew I was, I had already made the decision to go back to Vail. So that was nice. I didn't have to just, I don't know, move back in with my parents for a couple of weeks or anything like that. It was like, I went out, like, a, Sticking to the plan, I'm going back to Colorado. I'll find a job, find housing, did all those things. Just took a little longer than if I had already had it planned, but it was all right. And speaking of moments, what are some of the moments that are most powerful to you from our trip? Um, 
Yeah, definitely. The first one is just finishing the trip. That was super powerful moment. Um, we just um, all sat. It was probably only a few hours before we were catching a flight. I think that afternoon we was kind of early, not early morning, like mid morning time. And we all went down to the Arctic Ocean. It was a pretty clear day, so we could see out. And we all put our arms around each other. And Quinn said some parting words that I think everyone felt in the same way. And we just soaked it all in, I think, one last time. Um, and that was super powerful. I think most seemed like everyone was at least had tears in their eyes. I'm not sure. Um, but we all, yeah, it was our last time all together still on the trip. And that was really powerful. Um, there was... I mean, obviously the the scare on Lake Winnipeg that I've I know you guys have talked about that already. Um, but if you want me to tell it again, I can, or not. What do you think? Your call. If you if you if you I feel like we want talked, to add I think to you it. guys have talked about it a couple of times, but it was just um, for me it was just so powerful because it really felt like everything was out of our control. You might just. Briefly explain so, what, yeah, what it is. I think um, it was basically a six, I believe it was a six-mile paddle. I think some other people threw out some other, other numbers, but I just remember knowing that at, at the farthest point, we were going to be three miles from land at any time, which is a crazy amount, um, like in the center point of that bay that we were, we were crossing. So we crossed the bay with a tailwind at our backs, and we kind of only noticed you know, already like 20 minutes in that the waves were really big because they were just building up as we got further away from the shore. And we all just were in our two-man canoes, um, not really next to each other, and everyone was just surviving, felt like, and just like praying. I don't know if people were praying, but just hoping like, okay, there's where we have to go. Let's just, if we make it there, felt like a miracle kind of, especially because if you could see the other boats, you saw how big the waves were. I mean, you felt it, but if you saw how they would go up crest and kind of disappear and then reappear on the other side of the wave, you thought like, wow, I don't think we're going to make it through this. And I know, Zach, you were literally telling Quinn, right? Yeah, you were in a boat with Quinn, and you were telling him, like, what did you say? Like, just one more. Every stroke gets us closer. Like, just paddle. One paddle cl closer to survival. One paddle closer to survival. And that's how I felt, too. And, uh, and it, I think it was just super powerful being on the other side of that and surviving that together and then yelling at each other. And it was still just so early on in the trip that – yeah, it was. It was crazy. And I remember, and then Paul, we were all yelling at each other about how dumb that was. And then Paul said, like, shut up. I love you guys. And I, but I do remember thinking, this is something I wanted to add that, like, we were only like two weeks into the trip. And I was like, does he really love us? Is he just saying that? <laughs> because he wants that's us funny. to shut up. Oh my gosh, that's fun. <laughs> I was like, like, does he love us? Like, no. 
it's a nice thing to say, but maybe does he, he really love to, me? Does he want hilarious. us to just shut up? Oh my gosh, <laughs> that is too funny. Yeah, and um, those were the two that stick out to me as powerful moments. I think, other than that, there's just, I think some of those. Yeah, none of the other. I mean, there were some beautiful views we showed together and really exhilarating rapids, but that was definitely the most powerful moment. Other things were beautiful or maybe powerful two weeks, uh, like doing a section together, but the moments, those those are the two that stick out to me. Do you feel like you learned something from the near-death experience? I mean, totally. I definitely will be more cautious. Um because I'd never experienced waves like that in a canoe. And I just, yeah, it's just so clear that we should have waited. You know, it's like we were just so caught up in how close we were to finishing Lake Winnipeg, how close we were to a resupply, how close we were. And we got caught up in thinking that like every day from the beginning, we have to keep hammering, have to keep going for it every day or else we're going to finish the trip. And, you know, real fall, like we finished before real fall had, had, had really set in up there. And can, we, yeah. Can you explain the danger of, of finishing in the fall? Yeah. I mean, we were, we had, we, I think Paul probably hammered it into us from an early planning stage that, cause he had it hammered into him by other people from the North country, other canoeists and, and experts kind of about expert canoeists about the dangers of paddling in early September and more. It's really after the the first two weeks of September that it's like, whoa, you definitely shouldn't be out there. And the risks are that you could have, you could be a hundred miles maybe from the finish, you know, that could take two days on a river and in canoes and just get hit by a, a early winter storm or a fall storm you know, two weeks into September that stays with you for 14 days and you're, you can't move. And yeah, so that was, I think the thought of that really had us hammering every moment because we knew that it was a short window. And, but I think if we would have just obviously taken a step back and looked at the bigger picture, it would have been, we would have realized that that was the wrong decision in any circumstance. To paddle that to stretch. To paddle that stretch because we were only maybe 20 days into the trip. We had still 100 days to make up time. We really did. and But we were just in that mentality that every day counts, which it did. It does in the long run, but also we could have ended our trip right there. Mm. And someone could have died. And, you know, I wasn't thinking necessarily that anyone would die, but it was definitely like if this if someone flips, like it's... If one boat flips, trips over probably. If two boats flips, then it's like, oh, maybe someone will die. You know, just if we're all like spread out. Yeah. You know, you know, at least if only one boat had flipped, we could have all maybe uh, congregated on where they were headed. Right, and I, and in that moment, I was thinking about the feasibility of that, and I determined in my head at that time, it's not possible to perform a rescue. No, it would have been more like. In my head, they flip. We lose. We definitely lose either the boat or the gear, or both. And then those people swim to shore. And then that's we, a long swim. 
Yeah, it would it would have been a long swim. Miles. And mm. or we would have been able to pick one person up, something like that. Drive they, them. Yeah, exactly. I wonder if we toad, would have thought to do them. that in the moment. Yeah. Or like imagine the Sternsman tr- putting the paddle down and not being able to do a correction stroke getting turned sideways. Yeah. No, totally so, freaky. Yeah. Definitely one boat flipped some someone yeah. could have died too. Just Yeah, I think if the fact that if you had four dry people then you would be able to, even if they were in the water for that long, to get the fire going, get the simple carbohydrates in them, and get them dry and their body heated up so that they would live. And the trip would be over because they would have had hypothermia and we would have lost a third of our gear. But I I would hope that we would have been able to at least save some lives. But that never happened, so... And the, I, I think this would be interesting. So I, I think we can unanimously agree that was the worst decision on our trip. Mm-hmm. What do you think was the best decision we made mm. while on the trip? Uh, let me think about it a little bit because my go-to might not be the right one. What is your go-to? And then my we go, can my gut it. was the the decision to shoot the slave, <laughs> the great or the slave rapids. Wow! Because that was like one of the. I mean, I, I would say the last day of the trip, the last full day of the trip was my favorite day, but that was definitely a second. Yeah, that was an awesome day of just running rapids for 10, day, 10 hours, I think, at least. And can you, uh, we've talked about the slave rip rapids, but can you briefly describe what those are for the new listeners? Yeah, so basically it's um, a stretch uh, right on the border of Alberta and Northwest and the Northwest Territories. And it's about 20 miles long. And I think there's about, I think there's five distinct drops in it. Um, and it's basically the river has had no rapids up until this. And all of a sudden, in these 20 miles, there is, the, the, the river widens out to about a mile. And there's all these different uh, islands and channels you can go in. And it's literally world-class whitewater um, for kayakers. And we had heard from everybody from people we met you know weeks before you know don't shoot those rapids from other of our advisors before when we were planning the trip you know that you guys are going to have to figure out what to do there you can't shoot it blah 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 and then we talked to some some people who are kayakers who live there in the summers and they told us that yes you can shoot it in a canoe and we will take you i'll take you down and show you the way and and don't like don't even really sweat it pretty much and i think that was would have been a big drag to have missed that and we wouldn't have even known it but just the fact that we did it you know that that was a good decision why why are you so happy that we decided to do that because it's literally in the middle of nowhere like i don't know how long people drive to get there these people go up there every summer, kayakers, to paddle these waters. And we, it was just in our route. You know, we were going to go through there no matter what. And it just so happens that, boom, there's some of the world-class white water that people will drive, you know, 20 to 40 hours, you know, or longer to, to get to spend a week there. And we got, we just, oh, we happened upon them basically. Like, just so happens that these were in the middle of, the route that it takes to go from Minnesota to the Arctic Ocean. 
And then just like, well, let's do it. And it is kind of wild because the 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 river leading up to it is mostly, I mean, it has a steady current. Oh, yeah. But no major drops like None. that that would create rapids and, and that exist on that 20-mile section. Mm-mm. Yeah, I just, it was just an amazing place. Like, I bet you talk to any kayaker, they'll be jealous that we got to see that place. Um, anyone who knows. I think it's just kind of has a reputation of being a, a destination that's can, really hard to reach. Can you also briefly describe what our um, residential situation was when we were there or, or how we managed to stay? Yeah, so they're the same people who um, took us down the the canoe sneak route kind of way were, uh, their names were Leif and Natalie, and they, some are up there, they bought a house a few years back up there, and Basically, they run it as a a hostel for kayakers, professional kayakers, to come up and play. And and yeah, so we went there um, middle of summer and stayed camped in their backyard. And there was two or three, maybe more, professional kayakers there that we got to meet. That you know, none of us knew anything about kayaking, and we it was funny we got to come back and talk to our friend here in Vail who's really into kayaking. And he was just like, oh, you got to meet Brooke? Like, what was she like? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he's like, I don't know. She's pretty normal. <laughs> <laughs> right. But we had never heard of these no, famous yeah, kayakers. We had never, yeah. And he's like, what? So, yeah. Yeah. And, and so we just we were able to camp at this kind of like super sporty – you know, water sporty house that they, you know, a bunch of kayaks everywhere, a bunch of canoes everywhere, and a bunch of people who are into water sports, mm. river sports. Just because now that I'm thinking about the Slave Rapids, I'm thinking about that whole portion of the trip in general. Mm-hmm. And then I'm thinking like, while on the trip, we really, we distinctly separated the different parts of our trip. The first part, all being separated by our resupplies. Yeah. And on the trip, we'd say like, oh, act one, you know, scene scene three, whatever. Yeah. First, yeah. What do you think of that? Um, how would you describe that portion of our trip? It kind of comes in the middle of everything. And for me, it's not the most memorable. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. Slave Rapids. Can you talk a little bit about that portion? So that would be the portion from um, Fort McMurray, where we had our second resupply, to Yellow, yeah, the town of Yellowknife, where we kind of self-resupplied in the big city of Yellowknife. And it was the shortest part of our trip, actually, in day day wise, because and that's maybe that's part of the reason you don't remember it that well. Um, and it was basically the, the main reason why it took the less the least amount of time is because it was all downstream. So Fort McMurray was right after the Methy Portage. Um, we had shifted watersheds, and everything was flowing. Basically, everything was flowing to the Arctic at that point. We just hopped on this flooded river, uh, the Athabasca, that was going so fast. And, you know, basically that was, and so this section was pretty much all downhill and it was Mm -hmm. pretty unremarkable because other than that small 20 mile one day awesome adventure we had, it was all very monotonous, I would say. It was not super challenging physically because we were, you know, making 50 miles a day, not even trying really on super fast river. The banks were flooded, so it was hard to find 
there was mo- mostly more like comfort things that were lacking. Really bad campsites. It was hot at that point. A lot of horse flies and moving really fast. And it was kind of like, let's get off this section. Like this, let, you know, other than the, the slave rapids that I described, it was like, even though this was like the downhill, we were going like, we went like 600 miles in like 20 something days. You know, it was, it was pretty much like, all right, it's hot. 10 a.m. horse flies come out and they're just bugging you all day. And there's no real challenge other than finding camp and um, finding and getting clean water that's not silty, pretty much, and the horse flies. Can, for, for the listeners who aren't familiar with horse flies, can you describe what a horse fly is? Horse fly are those really, you'll probably know when I now describe it, those really big flies that are about, I don't know, probably the size of... Uh, the length of a penny. Yep. Yeah. I was exactly thinking and that. Not that fat, obviously. They're not circles, but and they they're big, they're pretty fast. And they the way you might remember them is if you were ever out on a lake in the hot summer and you jumped into the water and got back out and you felt the sting, that was probably a horse flies because they love they love getting the wet humans when they come out of the water. But these horse flies were crazy. These were you know, the same horsefly I'm talking about, but they were in swarms. Think of a mosquito swarm, but with bugs that size. Um, basically, I know one day I, they count, they basically would come out at 10 when it started to get really hot. I'm not sure exactly why they like the heat though. And I think from 10 to 12, one day I killed a hundred horseflies while paddling. And like just they, all the carnage was in the boat because I would just slap them and, They'd land in the boat, and I made a game out of it because it was the only way for me to not go crazy because they would just swarm around your head, land on the boat, land on your legs, and I would just try to kill them and keep count for fun. Do you feel like the horse flies were disruptive to your experience on the trip? Definitely. For that for that section, it was not enjoyable to paddle very much when they were out. I loved those early morning parts when they wouldn't come out, and then it would be like 9.30, one or two would come out and be like, starting again <laughs> the next day. I mean, it was really only, I think, about a week of that, of those horse flies coming out. But it was, yeah, definitely did not make the day spent in the boat very enjoyable. Can you talk about those morning paddles? Because I agree. I, I think the, well, just across, during the entire trip, I came to love that the first paddle of the morning so right after you break camp and you get on the water that first hour or two hours of paddling can you describe what it's like yeah so you you know the first hour is probably you're still getting warmed up so you do have your your body's pretty stiff i'd say and that's the only negative um but other than that you're super fresh first of all mind and body um and you and it's quiet the sun is, you get to watch the sun kind of rise. Um, it may already, I mean, you know, it's not, we're not necessarily talking about going from dark, but just rise over the trees and it's cool. And I think maybe just everything's a little bit sleepy. And so you're just paddling through a more serene wilderness and you get to see, and then everything kind of comes to life. 
in that transition. And yeah, it's just, I, I, it was my favorite stretch. I just like to kind of paddle quietly and really enjoy the quiet that before everything kind of wakes up and, and we will fully wake up too because the morning everyone's kind of in their own head a little bit, I think. And it's kind of fun to just paddle quietly, I think, sometimes, and especially in the morning. And it, and it hasn't gotten old either, you know. I know we, we paddled for 109 days, but even every day, I think you'd get a little bit tired of it, of paddling. And, but just like that first stretch is like, all right, this is fresh and new again. Yeah. Magical. Mm-hmm, very much. Can you describe our routine? Um. Yeah, I can try to. We would wake up very early. Um, Paul, we it didn't start this way, but basically, I don't know how long in, but pretty early on in the trip, Paul started waking up before everyone and starting making breakfast. And that lasted, I want to say it was at least 90 days that he did that. I don't really know. And so we'd all be sleeping. Paul would wake us up by saying, guys breakfast or something like that and (laughs) like the same thing every day pretty much and we would all wake up everyone had their we had two people per tent those two people pack all their stuff up put the tent away bring all the gear down to the kitchen area or down to the depending on where we were if it was like an easy place to you know load the boat and leave it there while you eat breakfast, we'd load it or we just bring it down towards the boats and then all sit and eat either oatmeal or granola and drink coffee. And the way it worked was we would all eat and then Zach, you take the longest, but and then while Zach was eating, everyone would just be probably drinking like three or four more cups of coffee. And then and then we'd start our day, we'd paddle. <clears throat> it was always, the first stretch was probably always the longest, one and a half to two hours maybe. We would probably do one more stretch after that. That was an hour and a half or so. And then eat trail mix with pemmican to get some calories in. That would be like a longer break. And then we would paddle another stretch and a half, maybe eat lunch. It, you know, sometimes those were faster, sometimes they were slower. A few days we even fell asleep during that. And then we'd get back on the water, paddle. Everyone was getting tired by this point, I'd say. Post lunch, I think everyone, you know, everyone slowed down. And I don't know if it's the, your metabolism's working on getting the food down or you're just tired from paddling the six hours earlier. Um, and then we hit, would hit probably, we do two stretches and then we would start thinking about it where, when we were going to camp and voting on when we were going to camp and where we would camp and if we should camp. And it would become like a, a vote most days. So we're like, all right, well, you guys want to camp? And I think how do we, it was like if someone mentioned it, we would have a vote about it. It was like, who's going to mention it first? Kind of right. Thing. That was the, kind of the challenge. Not you don't want to be the first one to to yeah. say that. You know. Yeah. But then, yeah. if someone did say it, 
lot it's of like, times. Wait, be you like, would, you'd be forced, like, if you, you call it? first available, next, first, avail- next available, next available. So then it just became a thing. <laughs> Like, you were kind of guilted in the. It was like, are you saying next available? Is that, right so now? is that no? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what it was called. And then it just became a thing that you wouldn't even have a yeah. conversation and you'd just say next available. Mm-hmm. Um, that was way later in the trip. Right. Be like, next available. And then we'd be like, all right, who else wants this camp? Yeah, next available. And next camp. available just meant that. Um, and maybe it really became a thing when we were in those times where it was really hard to find a good campsite. Right. So it'd be like next available. And that could mean paddling. An hour, two hours, or fifteen minutes, and it was just like making a call. Like we're not passing another campsite, right? Basically, because we know they're scarce. And then it became even when they weren't that scarce, it'd be like next available, right? Let's check out. And then it was just this game of like, oh, just like this game that we'd play of like, what is the, what is worth pulling over and looking at? Oh yeah, it's like all right, should we look at that one or not? And be like, <laughs> okay, I'll go look at it. Like, nope, we're not doing it. Or like borderline ones where it's like, oh, maybe everyone should look at this one. <laughs> and then we'll vote. And then it was just like, yeah. And so those next available, once it was next available, the day was over. But sometimes the day wouldn't, we wouldn't really be making camp for another hour and a half. But you'd be just meandering, you know, up the river, down the river, across the lake um, from like, Potential campsite to potential campsite. To, it got kind of annoying, but it was like all we could do because we didn't know where the campsites were or anything like that. Whereas on our two-week canoe trips that we do up at camp, we everyone's done them or you know someone who's done them, you know where campsites should be pretty much, but we were just always blind. Like, oh, well, time to camp. Let's see if we can find one. And then we would make dinner. One person would make dinner, maybe two people if it was a more complicated one. While well, everyone else would set up the tents, and then we created a tradition, also pretty early on. I'd want to say after the first resupply, where we would make sure we're all eating our meals together. And it was, um, yeah. So we just—it was a good time to. I think we did it so that it was when we could hash out any problems during the day or hash out any plans for the future. It was like more important, an important discussion, which wasn't every night. Sometimes we were just eating and talking. But yeah, more structured time to talk about things. Right, intentional, intentional. Yeah, right. And then we'd we'd close out in the tent with either a book or, if it was a really hard day, just uh, maybe a quick conversation, a quick jot in the journal, and sleep. Sleep. Yeah, and then we did have a journal that we would pass around every every night. So every six nights, you would get it. That was also part of our routine. Someone would be writing in the journal. Yeah. And then same thing the next day, pretty much. Can you talk about the literature that we had on the trip? Yeah, we we had some Kindles out there, which was nice. That was pretty unlimited libraries. And then we had some books that we would pass around. We did, I know, a few of us read Hot Gates, right? Gates of Fire. Gates of Fire, sorry. The Hot Gates is what they're called. Yeah, which is what 300 is based off of. The Battle of Thermopylae. Thermopylae, yeah. And we had that one on Kindle. And we had, man, I don't know. We would just all, and we would all kind of read the same books eventually. Well, what are some of the books that you read? Well, I read that, Thermopylae. That one really stood out to me. I read the three, I forget what what they call it, 
but a Cormac McCarthy trilogy with like all the pretty horses, the crossing, and cities on a plane, which is just kind of like set in a west, all western Texas, Mexico, New Mexico landscapes, um, with young men. Um, pretty, yeah, and I really liked those too. Um, I read those, and then I read some stuff about, um, we had some like more historical stuff that was, we had a Voyager book that I read um, that was just really fitting because we were kind of like Voyagers and we, and then I read one that was about the plane. Can you, just What's before you move on, right. Voyager was, um, it's a traditionally French, Canadian, French, maybe also New York, upper, up, upstate New York, kind of um, the St. Lawrence River area. They They grew up. And they were just canoeists for their whole lives. And fur traders. Yeah, so they would work for the big fur trading companies. And some of them would just do the route between St. Lawrence and, you know, the Great Lakes, I think, Grand Portage area. Just that. And they would that was one. And then you had the ones that were called the winterers who were literally doing the same. They would go by canoe out to the middle of Canada where we were canoeing all those same places. And that's where all this, and they would winter there um, over the winter and set up trading posts and fur trap all winter and marry with the native, with the first nations people in Canada. And um, they really, yeah, we're, they're just like this kind of colorful figure that just sang all day and canoed all day and, would put their bodies through immense suffering for to canoe and like and portage huge sacks of of fur. And but yeah, and they would sing all the time and be jolly about it. Yeah, kind of like I don't know, they're kind of mythological mythological, you know, like folk folktale people. What is that word mythologized? Or, they uh, they've been um I don't know. Yeah. There's a word like that. Yeah, I know. But I'm not sure what it is right now. Regardless, they're just kind of like this colorful historical figure that they were like the first white canoeists. Um, yeah. They're pretty badass sounding. Um, but yeah, and then I also read a couple books about the Native of Plains Indians. Was it, I think it was called How the West Was Lost. Just about the that whole 1800s time period transitioning from when that was all the wild west and when the plains indians controlled it and what that was like to lose it from their perspective pretty powerful stuff and then i think i didn't actually end up reading it but a lot of people read uh heart of darkness which is a water book too yeah but we would all read at least one person usually would have read the same book you've read at some point we'll talk about it yeah yeah. It was not. It was nice to be able to talk about that yeah. the literature yeah. while paddling. Book club. Book club. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Can you talk also? Um, can you describe our diet? Yeah. So we did a very. Um, it was kind of mathematical approach and thoughtful approach to our diet to maximize um, the calorie to weight ratio and protein. So basically it was like calories, weight, protein, and cost were all big factors in the food we brought for 
we I think packed 140 days worth of food because we needed extra just in case. Um, and because we were planning for 120 days and we would basically do about 6,000 calories a day for the first 90 days. And then we plan to lower that amount for the last part of the trip so that um, we wouldn't have these ginormous sacks, I think mostly for the, for like the very strenuous portaging. It was a give and take though. Um, but we basically would drench all of our meals in, in oils, all of our dinners in oil, because that's very calorically dense. We would, and then we would, um, my parents made pemmican, which is, came from Native Americans. Voyagers would eat it. And it's basically just this superfood of protein and calories that it can get so small and light. And it's made, it's basically like you get, you dry out beef, you add uh, rendered fat, which is tallow, mix it in, you dry out the beef, grind it up into like a sawdust, and then you mix it with its own fat. And it apparently can stay good for about 10 years, even, yeah, as long as it's not like getting wet or anything. Um, And so we took a bunch of that to add to all of our meals, and we would eat nuts um, three times a day is what we planned for. Sometimes it wouldn't really go that well. I mean, go that way because we were so full, honestly. And yes, we the first couple of weeks was super hard to down all that energy. And but we tried our best and got ate as much as we could and ate a lot and never threw away food really. Um, but it was like getting adjusted um, to that. And then finally, when we like started running a caloric deficit, that's when it we could start eating everything. And we did. I mean, yeah. But it was basically we just like really thought out how our nutrition. No, I'm not, and I'm not talking about really vitamins and anything like that. It was more like macro, like calories, carbohydrates, protein. And we yeah. did bring multivitamins. We oh yeah, that's right. We did bring multivitamins, so we didn't even have to think about it in our food. I I mean, we also never got had a major sickness on the trip. No major illnesses. I want. I do wonder now, like to what extent the multivitamins played, our overall diet played in. in That's in true. That. Yeah, maybe we should start taking multivitamins. <laughs> yeah, right we took now. like geriatric multivitamins. I think they ended up. Oh really? <laughs> it seemed like it was marketed towards that. That's I think. funny. But it's just vitamins. What was the hardest part of the trip for you? The hardest part was definitely the. The section, uh, yeah, definitely the Yellowknife for the height of land after that. It was just. And do you, can you briefly describe what height of land means? Yeah, so height of land is a term used to describe literally the height of land. Um, it's a very literal term. So say you have two watersheds, and in between that would be the height of land, which is the highest point. Um, in between those two. So once you go to the top of that, the height of land, um, on your right will be all the water flowing one direction because of gravity. And on the left, all the water is flowing the other direction because of gravity. So height of land is when you are portaging over that section um, to switch watersheds. So we were going from the Yellowknife 
um, where all the water was flowing basically south down the Yellowknife into Great Slave Lake and then back emptying out into the Arctic Ocean down the Mackenzie. And we wanted to cross that uh, height of land to get to all the water that was in the upper Arctic watershed, I think is what we call it. And that's flowing the smaller rivers like the Coppermine and um, that's just flowing in its own little watershed and not going into the big Mackenzie River, which is kind of like the Arctic's Mississippi, I would call it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the Haida land is that section that is of land in between these two watersheds. What made the Yellowknife really, or the way I can describe the Yellowknife best in terms of what, of, of why it was the hardest, or, or maybe the, just the best illustration of how it was the hardest, was that every day I would, it was about a, the Yellowknife we were on for almost two weeks, I'd say, and then the Haida Land was like seven days after that, which was just pothole portaging. But the Yellowknife, uh, the best illustration was that every day as we moved on, it would just build on, the fatigue would build on itself. Whereas I think in earlier on in the trip, we were paddling hard and tying ourselves out, and but always putting all that energy back in through the food we were consuming. And we weren't portaging that much, which is a lot more strenuous on your body, both burning calories and just putting your muscles through the ringer. And you would wake up the next day, maybe a little stiff. I'm talking about the rest of the trip. and But you'd be back at your normal kind of 100% baseline. But on the Yellowknife, it just accumulated. It was like, I would wake up, I, the way I describe it is wake up, say, day two, and I would feel like my energy level and my, yeah, my overall energy level would be what I was feeling at lunch the the day before. So I would gain back about a half a day worth of energy. And remember I was saying like we were all pretty gassed by lunch for the rest of the trip. But yeah, I'm saying every day it felt like we were starting at lunch the day before. So it was like day two, it's the morning, but I feel like how I did at lunch day one. Day three, I feel like how I did at lunch day two, which is like tired. And we'd be doing full days. And part of the reason was that we were portaging sit probably seven, six or seven times on average a day. And the other reason was just we decided to bring a little bit less food and we were not putting back the energy that we needed to really fully recover. Yeah, so it was... And then you had the bugs. That wasn't very nice. And just all a lot of factors. It was definitely the toughest part of the trip. Physically and mentally? Physically, mentally, I'd say, yeah, there was it was... Super mentally challenging. But yeah, I just know. Uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't like, I mean, maybe it was the hardest thing I could, I've ever done, but it was. I just, there was, We definitely could have, there's harder things out there, which is kind of crazy, but it could have been harder, which is the scary part. Yeah, how much longer do you think you could have done that? I don't know. It, it's, I think I could have done it. I think we, we could have done it for a lot longer if it was, if necessary. there was, yeah, necessary. Yeah, if there was at the end, we knew the same goal, or maybe there would have been uh, some midpoint, kind of like, oh, we'll make it to that. And then, I mean, that's kind of how it was for us on a smaller scale. It was like three weeks, but it was like the first two weeks was like, all right, we just got to get through the LNF. We just got to get through the LNF. But in the back of 
think most of our heads, we knew that it wasn't just the yellow knife, but we were kind of just chunking it out because there was still another seven days of tough stuff. For me, I yeah, had you actually no, thought that. I, I yeah. had no idea. I thought after we finished going upriver of the yellow well, knife, the, we were. Yeah. That being said, I don't think anyone actually knew that would be as bad, but you know, we didn't, we didn't know what to expect for the height of land, but I don't think the rest of us really thought that it was over at that point. Maybe we did. I think I did like going into it. I was thinking of it only as the yellow knife. And then I like looked at the maps later or something like a weekend of the yellow knife. And I was like, Oh, maybe it's actually going to be 21 days of this. Can you describe a moment or two that really encapsulates the difficulty? Um, I think there was there was one portage. I don't, oh man, I can't even. Are you thinking think. of the upper carp? Yeah, that one was really bad. Just where we were. Or icy drenched. portage. Icy portage. I can't think of the one moment. I think one funny moment was when Axel and I got really mad at everyone for not stopping at that waterfall to camp. Because we were just tired mm. and pissed off. Okay. And it became like a huge deal. Describe that day. So let's build that day and then then we can understand the moment. It's kind of hard to remember exactly what the day was. You might have a better memory of it. But I know it was a tough day. And we were just doing going up the yellow knife. And to me, I remember it just being like it was portage after portage after portage. So we would we were all staying pretty close together, but it was basically like you would paddle upstream, do the portage, and you know get all your gear to the other side, and then start paddling up to the next portage, and then start. And it was just like you could pretty much see the next. Yeah, portage. you would. It was like well, you were walking way more than paddling. It would be like, yeah, you'd finish a portage and be like, oh, there's the next rapid. Let's go find the portage, and that was how it was. So it was nearing the end of the day ish. It was like probably only like three, maybe earlier. And we were already beat, beat to shit. And I don't know what it was, but I think Paul, or one, me, Axel, and I for that portage were the the last boat. And I think we both wanted to talk about camping at this waterfall because of the log we had said it was really good fishing. And we were like, let's we have, we wanted the food probably, and we wanted to fish. And but before we could even like get up to you guys that someone you know you guys were already done with the portage basically not quite like halfway done had done one load and then so we were just like all right screw it let's start portaging too and we did it and then it wasn't till like we finished the portage and pushed off that axel and, I, and we had like paddled out a little bit to get away from the bugs we were like probably paddled out a few hundred yards and we were like axel and i were like you know what the heck like wait why you know got really heated about how we didn't even talk about camping there and it was just like no one else's mind was on that. It was just like, let's finish that portage. And it was because Axel and I were in the same thinking of like, if we're just going to um, paddle a little bit into this lake, why not camp here onto this, near this waterfall where we can maybe catch fish? Right, but, like how much is actually going to be accomplished? Right, yeah. And then we ended up not paddling that far. And then so that really made us mad. And then at the campsite, it was super aggressive. And it wasn't even a campsite. We pulled over for we dinner. We pulled over for dinner because we were still kind of doing that for grizzly bears eating and then moving. 
we pulled over for dinner and like I don't know what happened, but someone was making dinner, we were collecting wood. I feel like Paul felt a little blindsided by Axel. Yeah, Axel and Paul really got into it. I think I I can't remember. I think I was yelling at you for not collecting wood <laughs> or not even at you, just yelling about it. I don't really remember, honestly, but it was like bad. Probably one of the worst fights when I think of it. I think. I mean, it was that. Think? I mean, I mean yeah, that, that and then fight. the other time on the Sturgeon Weir with you and Axel. Was that Sturgeon Oh, yeah. Weir? Sturgeon Weir and then um, on Lake Winnipeg. Yeah. Those are kind of our but three. But Lake Winnipeg to me was way, sh- it was just like more short. It right. Was very it was quick and explosive. And this and one adrenaline. lasted. Right. For a while. Like an hour. Yeah. And which it, isn't that long, but in the moment it felt like a really long time. And I was like, yeah. oh, are we going to get past it? It's just this? because I feel like also you don't know the pathway out of it. No. So it seemed like there was no way out. Right. For a while. Yeah. It's like, are we going to. Because like then Paul and Axel were trying to reconcile and it was not <laughs> working. It was not working. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know funny. who's. I think they were both kind of pushing back at each other at that moment. And then, yeah, and we, but yeah, it was just like we were all so exhausted. And that was really why it was that. And we were realizing we were coming to the end of the, the trip. So we wanted to fish a little bit, I think. But it was, yeah, so it was like, but it was really the exhaustion that fueled it and hunger. Yeah. Do you think that the body and that you adjust to those conditions? Definitely, you, you do. I mean, I think, yeah, there's just, we were adjusting to him. I mean, we could have kept doing it, but it was just really kind of, I don't know, just the hunger was getting to us, I think. That was mostly, I think if we had been well-fed, then it would have been something I could have kept doing for a really long time. But just being that hungry every every night and every day didn't wasn't good. And that's why we tried to beef up the rest of the trip, I think. And, uh, but we definitely, the human mind definitely adjusts to that sort of, you, your mind grows or it gets hardened by physical pain and overcoming that. I mean, it's, that was definitely, there was a lot of, yeah, mental hardening going on on that river. And that's like, when you think of it, that's all we're, that's a big thing what we do. I don't know if it's an official philosophy we have at Cooch, but that's. And Cooch is, um. Cooch is our camp. The summer camp where we all met. Yeah, so we take these kids out who are pretty soft. Um, you know, especially these days where kids have such access to everything is very easy for everyone these days. And these kids grew up in a world where the information's right at their hands and they've got video games they play all the time. And so we take them out on these canoe trips and I'm sure you remember your first canoe trip. Oh, yeah. Super hard. I was soft my first trip. Yeah, you, everyone is. So that just shows you, you your mind, you do adjust. To the, you build new baselines and thresholds mm. for pain and discomfort more. Not, not, I don't even want to talk about it like pain. Discomfort. Discomfort, totally. Yeah. So that could be mentally or physically, mentally and physically. And so, yeah, if you take a kid out on a canoe trip like that, they do their first portage, you know, that hurts, and but then you you do adjust, and you realize you can do it, and like you can do so much, so much stuff that you could never think was possible, and it's kind of crazy. But 
Yeah, your mind. Yeah, your mind can definitely adjust to any situation, really, if you want to. You know, I think you have to make an effort. Yeah. Did you ever question why why you were out there? I can't say I really questioned why I was out there. I'm trying to think, but I really don't think I did. I just it felt so right, and yeah, there was definitely some days like God, this really sucks, or. I'm really hungry, but uh, I think it was all always going to be worth it in my head, no matter what. Um, and yeah, I thought it was, a, even though it's like really, is it, yeah, like objectively from someone who wasn't on it, maybe it seems kind of pointless. I don't know. To some people, like, why did you guys do that? Um but to anyone who's on it, I think they know the benefits and just the whole that the whole experience was learning things, growing, focusing, team building. You know, I don't know, just seeing, yeah, going aiming towards something and and really giving it your all and really, I think, just shows shows you that anything is possible. Yeah. A trend that um, after speaking with other guys from our trip is that for a lot of them, they feel that the trip isn't over and that we still do a lot together. Five out of the six of us live in the same area and live in the same city. For you, do you feel that the trip is over? Uh, I do feel that the trip is over, yes, but I think that just it is really sweet and that we all live together. Not together, but in the same area, and it's super, I don't know, it's kind of crazy. And definitely when we get together all together, it's always brings it back, um, which we don't do that often, but we do do it. Um, we do do it. But um, yeah, and it always brings it back to the old habits, makes you remember the trip better, and it... Um, and we are like kind of been working on like a movie together, which has been nice to have that, you know, common goal thing again. But yeah, there, and there's definitely times where I'm like, um, just really busy with my life and everyone is. And it's, yeah, and it, I, I've had a couple moments where I'm like, dang, like we all live together. We need to be seizing that moment because it's not going to happen. Like next year, not even going to probably. It's not going to be like that, you know? Like, yeah. So I, I feel like time has been moving really fast this whole year because I've been really busy. Everyone's been busy. We're all doing our own things. And sometimes I'll like stop and be like, dang it, I need to, we need to get everyone together. And this has been more recently that I've thought these things. Just like, wow, like, oh, crap. Like, you know, who knows? Like, we don't know what Zach's doing next year. We don't. Paul's not going to be here. Sounds like pretty much like maybe me and me, Quinn and Axel will be here and like all our other friends, but we have five out of the six of us living here and it's pretty special. Yeah. We should try to capitalize on that more. And you know, with the coronavirus, I think we'll have a little more free time because <laughs> it seems like everyone is uh, yeah. out, of, out of work. I mean, we'll, we'll keep, you know, three feet apart from each other, but we should still. <laughs> What would your advice be to future expedition seekers? Really 
make sure that everyone's on board. I mean, that's pretty clear, I think, from the onset. I think it is really important to get everyone invested. Um, and I mean, in the planning period. So, you, you know, that was, we were able to all start forming a relationship over the whole year and a half of planning because it wasn't, I mean, I know Paul did most of the work, but we were still meeting via Skype or phone calls every week about, and if not, it was every other week to talk about it and hatch stuff and plan and divvy out responsibilities. I think that's really important. I think it helped um, just get everyone working together for one thing, share the load and getting everyone invested so that they're, I think that just made it so no one was ever going to drop out randomly. Everyone was, there was an accountability because of that. You know, we had already become a team. So you're really letting down the team if you're dropping out. Whereas if you have the one leader, I think, and everything's falling on you, you might be up to the challenge of doing everything and getting it dialed in. It, it may be a spectacular trip you've planned, but then there's, you know, if, you know, two, one or two of the people might get busy and decide they can't spend their whole summer doing that because they never were able to buy in because it was more like, I'm going on this person's trip. Whereas we were all going on our own trip together. Mm. And I think that was really great. Um, that's really like the biggest, biggest thing. And then just on the trip being, yeah, just what I was saying, like seeing the bigger picture is important on making those decisions. And really, really, the one other time that we made a good decision, I'm going to give it up to Paul because it was when we were iced out on Winnipeg. Um, basically, we were stuck on an island and surrounded by ice all on the horizon of where we were trying to go. But we popped up a drone and saw that, oh, we could probably, we saw a way to paddle really freaking out in the open and go to another island. But it would have been, I can't remember how long, a huge... 15 miles, I think. Yeah, just a huge expanse of water that was totally not what we had written in our proposal about how we would be doing these crossings. Um, you know, and... Can you briefly describe the danger of doing a big crossing on a lake like basically, that? Basically, yeah, it's just any... On a, on a lake that size, it has its own climate and its own it just crazy weather patterns, like... And then basically it's its own microclimate and a storm out there can pop up out of nowhere. And if you're paddling 15 miles, canoes are pretty fucking slow. Pardon my language. Canoes are pretty slow. Um, and they, you know, we're, what we're going like three or three miles an hour, probably maybe four. So that we're talking five hours. Anything could happen in five hours. And if you're that far away from land and out in a huge open lake where big storm pops up, gets windy, and then the waves start to kick up and you're in a small vessel like that, you know, anything can happen. You, you're dead in the water. And, you know, um, that there's a, you know, people died. Someone died just this past summer crossing Great Slave in a kayak. Same thing. Like, and this is a lake that we did. Yeah, that was around. another giant lake. We had Lake Winnipeg and Great Slave Lake. 
and um and basically though back to the the story we were getting cabin fever even though we'd barely been there that long um and this brings me back to the whole point i was making about how we felt like every day counted and we didn't want to wait there on this island we didn't know how long it was going to be it felt like it was going to be forever didn't really see an end in sight just looked really scary like this could be here for so long and we know we were talking about it like okay well how long can we like put a backstop on this wait like if we do wait you know you know how long are you guys willing to wait before we decide to make this crazy crossing and you know people said like five days blah 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 and then then it got it felt like some momentum was building for a push to do it kind of felt that way do you remember it that way and i don't know what exactly the voting you know who was on what side um but yeah this was definitely an example of us employing groupthink in a way and paul was pretty much silent the whole time and we were trying to get him to talk and he still wasn't really saying much and then finally as it was really starting to get pushed that we were going to make this crazy crossing paul um said okay so say we do this and we are paddling it and one boat flips and uh your friend dies how would you you're not the one that dies you know say he's like zach dies how are you going to be able to um explain the decision you made to his mom or you know how are you going to explain that decision and like are you going to be able to truly justify that death no you and we were all like uh no so then it just really got us thinking about the true mortality of the situation that could happen and um it swayed everyone's mind to stop you know leaning that way and we all like unanimously decided we should stay and wait it out and it just yeah really look think about the big picture when you're making those decisions it's really easy to get myopic and think about the the small picture and the and the that just in a very small way like oh we can do it like it's good weather out you know what what's the difference blah blah, blah. and yeah just bring making when you're making those huge decisions really think about it and take it to the whole next level like that was some wisdom for paul and i'm so glad that he did that that was said that totally an unreal moment yeah and a good display of leadership yeah and a good yeah good head on his shoulders there yeah good great head on his shoulders there yeah because no one was really thinking of it like that all we were thinking about is that we could make it or like oh it's risky it was always just like it's risky it was never like how are you going to tell this person's parents why their kid died and how you guys made that decision. Could you justify it? No, not for that. Like, oh, we thought it was going to be forever. So we decided to just paddle now instead of wait for a few days or for a week. No, not a good explanation. Yeah, but I think that also set a tone because that happened earlier on in the trip of just when you have a big decision, stepping back and thinking of the decisions in all these different ways, mm-hmm. which was a cool component of the democratic system, something that we've evaluated in past podcasts with other guys of the trip, our decision-making process. 
was was there anything else you wanted to add to this podcast now that you're, you've been thinking about the trip right now? Um, I definitely, I'm not, I really did get to say a lot. I feel like I just want, yeah, I just hope that everyone, I, I think it's important to keep, I know, I know some of us are saying the trip's not over, but yeah, to just keep the same mentality that we had going into this trip to just try to bring it on to your real life and the rest of your life and it's tough and just to give everything your full effort and that's important and that can give you meaning in life no matter what I think for most people if they're truly working them they're 100% or they're uh, yet to their fullest potential and always pushing it Um, yeah so I just think that Definitely, I want everyone to keep doing that out there. And I want people who are thinking about planning a big trip or have an idea, they should really go for it because you're not going to regret it. Even if you fail, you're going to learn something. You're going to know you did. You gave it your all. That's about it, I think. Well, Bram, I just want to say it was... uh... It was amazing tripping with you. Um, Bram and I have known each other since sixth grade. Um, we were on the same soccer team um, in middle school, and uh, we've been friends ever since. He was the one who told me about camp and got me up. So I'm uh, incredibly grateful. I think it was Bram who reached out to me, invited me onto the trip, and uh, yeah, couldn't couldn't imagine doing it with anyone else. So yeah, thank you. That was yeah, it was an honor. Well, still is. Thank you, Bram, for coming on to an episode of In the Area Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to the channel, hit that follow button, and uh, tune in as we collect wisdom nuggets from all these wonderful people. Have a great night, Bram.